0: Well, good morning. Let me add my words of welcome to you this morning, and uh, nice to see that a lot of you have come back from holidays, traveling, kids are back in school, parents are saying, yes, kids are back in school, kids are saying, oh, we're back in school, (laughs) well, Nice to to have you here and kind of feel like we're getting back into a normal routine. As much as I like holidays, I do like getting back into the normal routine. It's nice, isn't it? So I want to say thanks to Dave for his very thoughtful um, planning of our worship this morning because really it has prepared us uh, with some of those themes, some of those thoughts uh, for the table of the Lord that is coming, that idea of freedom in Christ, the idea of being released from slavery, the idea that uh, we no longer live under bondage, but we live in freedom, and, and these kinds of things that uh, we want to think about this morning. Um, this really isn't in my, my sermon prep, um, but I was thinking earlier this morning, and you'll kind of see how this fits, hopefully at some point a little bit later on in the message. I was thinking this morning, I was telling my wife... Um, as we were driving to churches, I said, do you remember the story of the, uh, the Chinese farmer and uh, the Chinese farmer who had a horse? And she said, yeah, I think I remember this story. Chinese farmer who had a horse and the horse ran away. And all of his neighbors came to him and said, oh, that's very, that's terrible. How unlucky that, that you had one horse and your horses run away. And he said, well, maybe, maybe not. Let's wait and see. So the next day, the horse came back and brought six more horses with him. And so now the Chinese farmer has seven horses. And all the, the friends come together and say, oh, that's great, this is wonderful. You had one horse, now you have seven horses, and this is good. And the farmer says, hmm, let's wait and see. Well, we don't know. This might, uh, maybe it's not so good. So the next day, the farmer's son takes one of the wild horses out and tries to train the horse, tries to break the horse and he's riding the horse and the horse throws him off and the son breaks his leg. And all the neighbors again come together and say, oh, this is terrible, this is an awful tragedy and the the farmer says, well, I don't know, let's wait and see. So the next day, there's an army officer that comes to his house and he's, he's taking people into service to serve in the army and he comes to take the farmer's son away. And he can't because the son has broken his leg. And all the people say, oh, this is great. Your son can't go in the army. He has to stay here. And this father says, well, I don't know. Let's wait and see. We don't know, do we? These different circumstances, it looks good. It looks bad. But what's the one constant in the midst of all those circumstances? God. God is the one constant, the one faithful being in the midst of the tragedies, the triumphs, the good, the bad, whatever that is. God is the one faithful part of that story. A couple weeks ago, if you were here, you will remember we looked at the one psalm that was written by Moses. And that was Psalm 90. And you'll recall how in that psalm, Moses is reflecting from the end of his life back over his life. And the one thing that he is reflecting on is is the fact that his safety and his security is in God himself, that God alone is our dwelling place throughout all the seasons of life. God himself, through through the various experiences, the various seasons, everything that has happened, God himself has been the one and only constant refuge of his people. The psalm, as you will recall, has moments of reality, And even moments of of sobriety as as Moses' reflections no doubt come through the the filter of some of his more painful experiences of life. The highs, the lows, the good, the bad, the, 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 the challenges, whatever it is, Moses is reflecting back and said, what is the one constant in the midst of all of these things? Lord, you have been our dwelling place in every generation. The context of Moses' life and his leadership and his reflections on God as his dwelling place, as, as our dwelling place, come out of some very, very difficult and very painful circumstances in his life. And I am sure that there were times when, when Moses questioned that. Like you and like me, I am convinced that there were times in Moses' life when, when he had to just stop and ask some very, very familiar and very, very difficult questions questions like where is God in the midst of all of this? Why is he silent? Does God know, does God care what I am going through right now as as I am faced with some really difficult decisions, as I am faced with circumstances that I never thought would be part of my life? Does God know? Does God care And why has he just left me to figure this out by myself? Those are common questions that every pastor, every leader, indeed I would say every person has faced at some point in their life. And I am convinced that Moses asked these kinds of questions himself. Those questions take me back not to the end of Moses' life, as we, as we saw reflected in Psalm 90, but, but to the beginning of his life. The, the early years of his leadership, and those early years come out of some very, very bleak, some very difficult circumstances. We'll be looking at Exodus chapter 2 in just a few moments, but before we look at Exodus 2, we, we need to understand the context of where this comes from, where Moses comes from, why, why is he leading these people out of bondage, what, what is the context of that, and, and to understand the context of Exodus, we need to go back to the end of Genesis, and the story of one of my favorite Old Testament characters, the story of Joseph. Because you can't understand where Moses comes from until you understand the life of Joseph. Through through a series of, of very treacherous actions and one of the great dysfunctional families in all of the Old Testament, Joseph's brothers have sold him to a group of traders who in turn have sold him to Potiphar. And I hope that is shocking to you. Brothers selling a brother to a group of traders who sells another person. Sadly, it happens today. People buying and selling people as though they're just a commodity, just another thing, like you would buy and sell a car. Who treats people that way? Who treats a family member that way? When that's Joseph's experience. (laughs) Thinking about the Chinese farmer, oh, that's a tragedy. Well, let's wait and see. Eventually, the traders sell him to Potiphar, who is a, a servant of, of the Pharaoh in Egypt, the king of Egypt. And over time, Joseph rises to a position of significant authority, a position of significant power in the, in the service of, of Pharaoh. And eventually, there is a tremendous famine across the land. A widespread famine, there, there is simply no food, no planting, no harvesting, people are, are running short of food. And, and so Joseph's brothers hear that there's food down in Egypt, and so they go down to Egypt to buy food. And through an, an interesting series of, of events and circumstances, These brothers come, and Joseph makes provision for his family, and they settle in Egypt. And at the right moment, at just the right time, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and says, this is who I am, the the brother that you sold into slavery, and he says to his brothers in Genesis chapter 45, verse 5, he, he says, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. But again, Joseph says to his brothers, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was, it was not you who sent me here, but God. What... What a tremendous perspective that Joseph has on on all of these these events. No doubt a perspective that has been gained over many, many years and a long time. But, But in the midst of that, there were some very deep uncertainties, weren't there, in the life of Joseph? Yes, it turns out well. In the midst of a very severe famine, God had gone before his people, and, and he made provision for them. He, he provided for them a place of, of flourishing, a place of prosperity. And it seems like a very happy ending to a really, really tragic story, doesn't it? And it was, but only for a season. When we turn the page from Genesis into Exodus, we leap ahead a few hundred years, and the people are still in Egypt. And there's a part of me that wonders, well, why did you stay there? Why did you just linger on in, in Egypt? We don't really know why, but, but they're still there. And in Exodus 1 8, we read that a new king arose over Egypt, and he did not know Joseph. He does not know Joseph. He doesn't remember Joseph. He doesn't regard Joseph. He doesn't even probably know his name. He hasn't looked back into the history to see who Joseph is or or how the king at that time regarded and respected and listened to Joseph. He doesn't know any of that. He is a king who doesn't remember or regard him as his predecessor did. And so he deals harshly with these people. These people who are obviously foreigners in his country and, and they have continued to multiply. They, they have become a large group of people by this time. And so verse, verse 13, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick. And in all kinds of work in the field, And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. What at one time was a place of refuge, a, a place of safety, a, a place of blessing, has now become a place of bondage. They came originally for safety. They they came originally for security to this this land of, of prosperity, a, a place where they would be where they would be provided for, where they would be cared for, but that dream has become their worst nightmare. I don't know if you can relate to that. Maybe you can. No, maybe not slavery, but maybe you can look at a time in your life when you you wonder, you're in a circumstance, you're in a situation, and you think to yourself, how did this happen? How did I get into this place? How did I get here? What did I do to deserve this? How did the circumstances of my life come to the place where this is where I'm sitting right now? How, how did this happen? And I am sure that these, that these Israelites are thinking, this was, our pla- this was our sanctuary. This was our place of refuge. And now we're slaves. We have no freedom. We are in bondage to a ruthless man. How did this happen? I've been in ministry long enough to have experienced a few seasons like that. When I faced undeserved accusations from people, I only wanted to help and to serve and to bless. And I remember one time in the midst of one of those seasons saying to my wife, Why am I being so abused by a person who I only wanted to bless? How did this happen? My only desire was to bless people. Why am I facing such unfair, unjust, unfounded accusation? How does that happen? A place of blessing had suddenly become a place of oppression. And I confess, in my weaker fleshly moments, my only thoughts were to run away. I just want to give it up. I should have been a plumber and not a pastor. And it leads to such obvious and painful questions. Does God know? Does he care? Has he abandoned me? Is he just leaving me alone to sit in this? And that is no doubt the questions that these children of Israel are asking as they are looking at their lives and they cry out to God. Exodus chapter 2, beginning at verse 23. And during those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. I want to focus our thoughts for a few moments on those two verses, verses 24 and 25. God's response to his people's suffering. No no doubt their cries and their groans had gone on for a very, very long time. We don't know how long. That's one of the things about Scripture is oftentimes it doesn't tell us how long this is going on. But, but these cries, these groanings are going on perhaps for many, many years. I remember one of those seasons of my life for four years. Years, four silent years, when I begged God to speak, and he didn't. And I wondered, does does God care? Does God know? And how many mornings did I say to my dear wife, why do I feel like God has abandoned me? For years, these people cried out to God. And they wondered, does he care? Is he listening to me? Has he abandoned us? Where where is he in the midst of our suffering? But look how Moses describes God's response. He heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant. He saw the people of Israel. I love that, that God hears and he remembers and he sees. And I love that final phrase, and God knew. He knew. I'm going to ask you a question that you may have never thought about before. might be a new concept. Have you ever considered the thought that God contemplates you. We often talk about our contemplation of God, that we, we contemplate him, and that's a familiar concept, especially for those of us who teach in the areas of spiritual theology and spiritual formation, but have you ever turned it around? God contemplates you. The, the all-knowing, all-loving, eternal, relational God of the universe takes time to consider, to think about, to ponder you. He is intimately aware of your circumstances, whatever whatever those circumstances are. He knows your challenges. He knows your sufferings. He knows your joys. He knows your sorrows. He knows your failures. He knows your successes. He knows your questions. He knows your confusions. God sees. God hears. God knows. And God understands. All of it. And I am convinced that he feels that as well. He feels. He has emotion. David, in so many of his psalms, reflects on this same overwhelming thought. Consider just a few of these out of the psalms of David who I'm convinced was a very, very passionate, very passionate man. Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Or what about Psalm 103? One of my wife's favorites, she often goes back to this one. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame Literally, he knows how we are formed, what we're made of. He remembers that we are dust. What about Psalm 139? The, the, The whole psalm really is this reflection on how God ponders his people, how God contemplates us. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and you are acquainted with all of my ways. But the part that I really love, verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, oh God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am with you. How precious to me are your thoughts. Your thoughts toward me. Your thoughts toward me that are, there's so many of them, I I can't count them. Can you count the the grains of sand on a beach? No. And David says, the the thoughts of God toward you are more than than those grains of sand. Moses says here in Exodus that God remembers. He remembers his covenant. All these, all these thoughts toward these, 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 these people, his people, causes him to remember his covenant, his, his relational promise to his people. His and his covenant cannot be broken. And he remembers his promise to these people. I remember one Christmas when we were still living in China. The postman came to our house one Christmas morning. It's not a holiday. Of course the postman would come to your house on Christmas Day because it's just another day, right? The postman came to our house with a postman with a package slip telling us that we had a package at the International Post Office across the city. And so my son and I jumped into a, a taxi cab knowing that the post office would be open on Christmas Day since it's not a holiday. And so we, we went across the city in the taxi and we, we went to the International Post Office. We collected our, our package, a box. We got back into another taxi cab and we are on our way back home with this, this large parcel. And as we were sitting in that taxi on the way home, my son, who was probably about, what, 12 or 13 or something at the time, made an interesting observation. He said, you know, Dad, isn't it a good feeling to be remembered? He said, it's not just that people didn't forget us. They remembered us. He said, you know what? Remembering is so much more active than simply not forgetting. To remember is, it it, it requires some kind of action. To remember actually takes initiative and it, it leads to some kind of a response. It's one thing simply not to forget somebody or not to forget something. But remembering actually takes it to a whole new level. These people remembered us and they bought some things and they put it in a box. I don't even remember what the things are. But what do I remember? I remember the love of the people that spurred them to some kind of action to do something for us. And I've never forgotten a 12-year-old boy's response. They didn't just not forget us. They remembered us. And they did something about it. They took action as a result. And that's what God does. He remembers his covenant with his people. And God responds knowing the fullness of everything about us. And God answers according to the fullness of who he is. Everything of his grace and his justice, his mercy and his wrath, everything is an expression of the fullness of his love. God contemplates you, and he can only see you through the filter of his love. And to do anything less would deny himself and compromise his character. God remembers And he acts. And so God meets Moses in a very unusual way. He speaks to Moses in a burning bush. You see, not only does God hear and God see and God remember, he responds. That remembering prompts him to do something about it. Don't just sit back and not forget. No, let's respond and do something. And he says to Moses, chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. Isn't it interesting, the end of Chapter 2 says God knew, but chapter 3, we know what He knows. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them. Not only does God see and hear and remember, He responds. He says, I have seen, and I have heard, and I know their suffering. And he says, I have come to deliver. His hearing and his seeing and his remembering leads him to the response of delivering his people through Moses. And I'm sure Moses is sitting there thinking, yeah, pick him, not me. It's part of the conversation that he has with God is, am I really the right guy for this? God's plan to rescue his people ultimately led to the Passover. And through the wilderness, and again and again and again, through all those seasons and all those difficulties and all those circumstances, God reminds his people, I am with you. I will not forsake you. I will not abandon you. You are mine. He remembers that we are frail. He remembers that we are but dust. But he also remembers his promise. He remembers his covenant. You know, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that there is one much greater than Moses. He reminds us in chapter 3, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of much more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has much more honor than the house itself, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Yeah, Moses would testify of things that would come. The Passover becomes a picture of something much greater than the Passover, deliverance out of Egypt. Yes, Moses was indeed faithful in all of God's house, but but Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Moses rescued his people from the bondage of slavery. Jesus has rescued us from the bondage of sin. Moses led his people through the wilderness and into the promised land, and Jesus leads us into the eternal kingdom of God. And this table reminds us that God himself has heard the cries and the groans of his people. And he has come to deliver us. It has come at an enormous cost, the sacrifice of his own son, so that we would have life. Through the death of one comes the life of many. So that in Christ we would have truly an eternal dwelling place. You see, these reflections on the life of Moses, reflections on Passover, ultimately have to lead us back to the cross. And our ultimate rescue through the sacrifice of Jesus, our eternal high priest. As we will sing in a few moments, our beautiful Savior. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast. Let us hold strong To our confession in whatever circumstance we find ourselves let's hold on to that confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize remember what I said earlier he feels whatever you're going through he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, we have to do this regularly to remind us that there is grace, that there is mercy, that there is life. And those times when when life is hard, we need to come back to the cross, we need to come back to the table so that we can hold fast to our confidence and our confession and be reminded of what God has done He has heard our groanings. He has heard our prayers. He has released us from our bondage. I would like for us to to have some time to reflect this morning before we take these elements. Sometimes I think it's good to, to just sit and ponder. God contemplates you Let me give you a few moments to reflect and to ponder and to contemplate him. I don't know where you are at this moment. Perhaps you're in that place of wondering, like the the children of Israel, how did I get in this place? How did I get into this circumstance, this whatever it is? Perhaps you're in that place of bondage, so desperately looking for freedom. Maybe you're in a place of suffering, looking for relief. Maybe a, a season of questioning and wondering and confusion. And you're wondering, where is this going? What, it feels like a wilderness wandering to you. Or maybe this is a season of quiet contentment and delight. It's a season too. The reminder for all of us is that God is with us in it, whatever that season is. God is with you in it. He is your dwelling place. Regardless of the time, regardless of the season, regardless of the circumstances, we dwell in him. I'm gonna ask you to just simply sit and reflect for a few moments on those things. What are your circumstances? And what is God's promise to you? In your own time, come to one of those those servers and you'll see these two elements, a broken piece of bread and a, a cup of juice. Reminders of the broken body of Jesus, a tragedy. The broken body of Christ, broken for you, and the shed blood of Jesus, Jesus who gave up his life so we would have life. And as you take those elements, reflect on the broken body of Christ, the shed blood of Christ, and your freedom that came at a very high price. Take those elements back to your seed, and you may eat the bread in your own time, but hold the cup. We will share that together at the end of our time. This is the Lord's Supper for all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed. You ever notice that? the night he was betrayed. He took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me pray for us and then come and partake. Father, we thank you for these simple elements that remind us that you have done everything necessary to buy our freedom to release us from bondage. You have heard our cries and our groans. And you have given us life through the death of Jesus. Consecrate these elements, use them for your purpose, and bring life, renewed life, to us as we partake.